Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and and for all of you Rodneys and Raymonds that are out there, including those who are confused and comfortable in your skin. It's time to start today's episode for Sunday, August the 15th, 2021. The Paul Truesdell Podcast is sponsored by Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing. And Longview Forecasting, practical forecasting for the busy professional and business owner. The Paul Truesdell Podcast, general business and economic observations, individual wealth, tips, tricks, tools, or techniques, and things that made Paul raise his eyebrows, shake his head and purse his lips while taking a deep breath. Let's get started. If this is the first time you've listened to one of my podcasts, welcome. And I'm not going to go through a lot of administrative items here today, but I do want to tell you that we altered what it is that we're doing today. And I'm going to put an audio up that is from a doctor who has said, in a way, the same things that we have been talking about now for 12 months. So let me begin by giving you a little bit of background. We knew in our office that the COVID, at the time we called it the Wuhan flu and the bat flu, we knew about this beginning in late September into October. In November, we began to get solid data, and I told every single client of mine and anyone who would listen that this has the potential of being really bad. I equated it to what my parents went through with the Spanish flu, and while both have passed away now, and if they were alive, it's possible they would be alive, they would both be 106. And so we have gone and made a complete 180 degree turn in our view on the pandemic. One of the things I want you to always remember and never forget, we are subject matter experts in the area of forecasting. It's what we do. It's what I've trained to do on an ad hoc basis my entire life. You can't go out and get a degree on super forecasting or anything like that. You have to be mathematically inclined. That's the quantitative analysis, but you have to have something called common sense. That's the qualitative analysis. Look at something and go, just because there is a correlation does not mean that there is a causation. That's an important concept. But unfortunately, that's not what we have going on. Now, can we predict the future? No. But can I and can others give a statistical calculation as to what's going to happen? Yeah. The problem I have right now, for example, with Afghanistan is that some of the brightest minds that we have in our intelligence communities collectively apparently did not get it right. Because it was just a few days ago, a few weeks ago, both that the State Department said that Afghanistan's fine and the Taliban will not take over the country. Biden said it recently. And at the end of this broadcast, when you hear what I'm about to play, I'm going to play it for you. I'm going to give you their words. Now, you know and I know that what we have been told to do has vacillated. Masks don't do anything. Certain non-pharmaceutical prescription-based drugs don't do anything. Natural immunity is not the same as getting the shot. 
I have complained continuously for over 30 years that the amount and the quality of information being received as an investment advisor has been degraded and that everybody seems to be out there selling something. Everybody has an agenda and far too many agendas are political and financial motivated. I have complained for both Republican and Democrats. Their administrations have politicized the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the Census Bureau, Centers for Disease Control, and the United Nations. I wouldn't give you two cents for anything that comes out of that place. Yes! You're fired! If I had the opportunity, I would fire most of these people because I find most of these people to be insanely stupid. And frankly, you have to always remember, I say this all the time. I wish uh, that I had some loftier purpose, but uh, I'm afraid in the end it's just the money. It's just the money for the vast majority of the people that are out there. So... What we had planned today to to distribute on the podcast, um, I've taken a pause. It's almost 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We have been working and doing research nonstop. I'm exhausted. We've been doing research about Afghanistan. We, we knew many, many, many months ago, many years ago, we've talked about this. I remember when a gentleman ran for Congress and served over in Afghanistan, and he said, we're never going to win this thing. We're going to eventually lose it. The best that we can do is just have a permanent, gigantic military base in the country and just bomb them constantly and use it as a training ground. You have to always remember and never forget, unlike what President Biden said or anyone else, you cannot defeat a country with an atomic or a nuclear weapon. The spirit of a nation cannot be defeated. And when you are trying to get somebody to do something for you, if they're being paid and they're mercenaries, eventually they're just going to walk away if, when the money stops. When I talk to you about partners, associates, acquaintances, I talk to you about how partners stick together through thick and thin. I've tried many, many times to get people to understand that concept. I've wasted my time tremendously People don't truly don't understand the concept of a partnership. People truly don't understand the concept of nationalism. People truly don't understand that capitalism is an economic theory, not a political theory. People don't understand in our country we do not have a democracy. We have a republic. And when the information comes out of a government and they're using the regulatory authority of a government to interfere in trade, when you have an overlap among certain groups of people that are very powerful and control what are known as bundled financial products, when you have major companies that are saying, yeah, you do what we tell you to do or else, the threat, you're going to have a lot of people who are going to capitulate. But there are enough people who are saying, no, you know what, I don't need to work here, I'm out of here. Now, the reason why this is important economically, notice that I am not telling you that I am at anti-vax vaccine. No, there are certain vaccines that make sense. I'm not telling you that you should revolt. I'm giving you a forecast. We're reading the tea leaves as best we can. I don't have a crystal ball, but we can use glass to magnify what we're seeing and we can see really well up close or very far away. So the magnification that I'm seeing is that this just-in-time manufacturing from manufacturers overseas definitely led to some severe strains on the supply and subsequent demand for various goods that we use here in the nation. What does that mean, Paul? That means when you're getting all your things from China and they are literally an enemy, they are a political and economic enemy, then you're dealing and doing business with the devil. You're cutting a deal with the devil. I get it. No problem. 
the more people trade, kumbaya, it all sounds good. But the less you make at home, the more dependent you are on other people. And so you have shortages. But that's just one part of it. The other part is that we have a dumbing down in the country. The IQ of the nation is dropping. The work ethic is dropping. Everybody is offended by everything in the world in the country. Buttercups and snowflakes are truly the majority in the country. And a lot of people who are on Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security or some type of a government pension, you're not going to go out and protest because you're in fear of losing whatever it is that you have. I get it. These are not complaints. These are statements of fact as I see it. So what does that mean? That means that very few of us are financially independent aside from any pension, anything with Social Security, any kind of health care. There's just not a lot of us who can basically tell you to go pound salt. And there's very few of us who have that position who are willing to do anything about it. I know this as a forecaster. And I know that when the population begins to say we've had enough of this, bad things happen. Remember Bastille Day, July the 14th in France, many hundreds of years ago. The USSR does not exist. East Germany does not exist. There are plenty of countries where the governments fell apart. And when you have a government that is doing things that people begin to go, hmm, that's very disruptive to the economy. So all things are personal. If you're doing well, if you feel good, you got a good job, you're making money, you're making bank, and you feel good, then you're very unlikely to absorb all of the pain and, Ill and, and evils and, and ills of the world. Yeah, okay, uh, maybe things could be better, but uh, yeah, I'm paying more for food, I'm paying more for gasoline, and uh, yeah, but I'm doing okay, I'm making bank. But the person who's not doing okay, person who is evicted, who cannot get a job, who have the skill sets, but they no longer qualify for the job for whatever reason, they're not happy. And as that segment of the population gets larger, if that occurs, and if they become physically unable to work because of adverse reactions and this philosophy of either do it our way or the highway, my body, my choice for abortions, but my body, my choice for vaccines, no. Now, we're not going to, you can't square certain things. Some people just can't do it. So we knew a year ago in August of 2020, we began telling all of our clients, wait. We started doing some deep research in June and July, and we said, this is not as serious as everybody wants to make it out. And we, we just look at facts. I know you know somebody that died of COVID. But when you ask the person, and I had this conversation the other day with somebody, and I really like this person, but they said, oh, yes, we know somebody died of COVID. No, you don't. You have to look at what the death certificates and what the CDC, and you got to look at all the numbers. You have people who are dying of underlying conditions, which were exacerbated potentially by a COVID illness, no different than the flu of every year. And the big thing is, it's 2021. We are now giving people vaccines based upon, the again, a virus from last year. Now, you have to understand the difference between these different viruses. The medical language, frankly, blows everybody away. And so many people just dive into the emotional. They begin throwing terms out. I had that happen the other day. I was in Tampa. I was at a... Uh, a uh, meeting and uh, we were on the Rocky Point and it was told you have to wear a mask. And I, no, I'm not going to wear a mask. It's not healthy. And if you've been vaccinated, please stay away from me because you are very likely to be asymptomatic 
and a spreader. Boy, that really ticked off a, a group of young ladies. Well, you see, the problem is, and this is the reason why I, for those of you who are younger and listening to this, if you drink, if you are always willing to drink the Kool-Aid and 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 eat the uh, mac and cheese and just do whatever you're told, I don't want anything to do with you. I just don't. You're a waste of my time. You're a waste of human tissue. On the other hand, if you have the capability of having a logical, rational argument where you know your facts and figures, where we can talk about something and come to some type of consensus, I'm interested in, in, in working with you. But I'm not interested in the emotions. That may be fine for the Jersey Shore television show or for the Kardashians or God knows whatever is out there, right? Okay. But it doesn't work when you are a scientist. And the lack of integrity in science is beyond comprehension. The lack of integrity when it comes to investment advisory services is beyond comprehension. When a police officer comes to investigate something, you want them to be compassionate, but not emotional. You don't want them to be unemotional and just like Joe Friday, they don't care. But at the same time, you want them to be compassionate. We've lost compassion, for example, in schools. Teachers have to maintain their distance from kids. There's always going to be the scumbag teacher. But teachers can't console or talk to a child. Oh, no, no, no. We got to do that in a formal setting. Let's get the law enforcement involved, write a report, get the counselors in. We've lost our mind, in my opinion. You know it, and I know it. And unfortunately, there's just too many of these cows out there. All they can do is moo. They're not providing any milk. If anything, they're perpetually sucking off the tit of the mother who is old, who is running out. They're too damn lazy to bend down and chew some grass. But when it comes to this virus, I want you to listen to this audio. I've taken a lot of time setting it up because it's available on YouTube. We've taken the audio out of it. I've cleaned up the audio. We put it here. Just listen to it. If you're driving back and forth to work, well, you're going to have to probably stop it. Maybe your drive is longer than 30 minutes, 20 minutes. Listen to it with your spouse. Listen to it with your children. Do please listen to this. And then at the very end, I'm going to play you a couple of clips from the State Department and from President Biden. If we can't believe them on something as simple and obvious as Afghanistan, when they come across like Baghdad Bob, and for those of you who don't know what Baghdad Bob means, look it up. How the hell can you acknowledge their expertise when it comes to COVID? Father Fauci is an interesting cat. And in his case, follow the money. Let me give you a disclaimer, and then we'll drop the audio in. Due to Paul's extensive holdings and that of his clients, you should assume that he and his firms have a position in all companies discussed and that a conflict of interest exists. By listening to this podcast and using this website in any manner, you understand the information presented is provided for informational purposes. Nothing said, written, or otherwise communicated in any form should be construed as an offer, recommendation, or solicitation to buy or sell a security. Hi, I'm Dr. Ryan Cole. I'm a board-certified anatomic and clinical pathologist trained at the Mayo Clinic. Um, I have subspecialty expertise in skin pathology and fellowship training in that as well. I run a full-service uh, laboratory here in Idaho, the largest independent laboratory in the state of Idaho. And I treat patients and have seen patients in consultation for the last uh, almost 18 years here from Florida to California, I'm licensed in 12 states. 
and I am an expert in immunology and virology as well. Uh, one of my board certifications, clinical pathology, involves virology. I did a year of PhD immunology research my first year of medical school as well. So virology and immunology, full lab medicine is what I do. Well, let me start by commenting. Um, we call these vaccines, but in the emergency authorization of these shots, they clearly are using off the term investigational vaccines. And that's a, an important point to make. And we are asking people, those nurses, those students, those employees, to be subjects in an experiment on humanity. This is a large phase three trial by getting this shot of something for the which we do not know the long-term effects and side effects down the road. And we usually don't see those for two, three, four, five years. In terms of shortages, forcing people to get this, there are people that value their bodily integrity. And as a hardcore scientist, I'm, I'm, I'm not political. I look at data. And when I look at the data, I'm already seeing the adverse effects from these shots in the laboratory setting. So these individuals who are subjecting themselves to this just to maintain a job, um, we're, we're seeing it in young people, uh, middle-aged people, old people, a lot of people are simply not going to get this shot. I've heard administrators from the system say, oh, we'll make you cave, you will cave. I have plenty of nurses who have shared with me that that's the uh, mantra within administration, we're gonna make you cave. They won't, they will leave. They will stand for principle and their bodily integrity and their long-term health. And they have every right to do that, to not be a subject in, in human experimentation and coercion. So they're going to see huge staffing shortages, huge. I uh, have a friend in Indiana uh, reached out today and looked at a couple articles from there. There are already shortages in their, in their staffing within their hospital system. They're trying to do the same thing. Another physician group out of Michigan, same thing. They already have shortages. Now they're going to have massive shortages. So this isn't just a mandate on employees of a healthcare system. This is a mandate and an attack on an entire community and an entire community's wellness and access to care. They pride themselves with this, these institutions to say, oh, we're here for the patient, we're here for the community. This clearly says they're not. It is, it is literally the antithesis of that. They're flipping the script and, and giving a, you know, mellifluous uh, commentary on how much they're here for us, but they're literally attacking us and our access to care because those nurses don't want their bodies damaged. They don't want their fertility damaged. They don't want their long-term immune health damaged. They don't want to increase their risk for cancers. But I'm seeing the signals in the laboratory already. Um, they don't want to subject themselves to that, and they should not have to be coerced into an experimental shot as it says in the emergency authorization, investigational vaccine in order to maintain employment. This is a violation. We made a promise in 1947 after World War II that we never again would experiment on humanity or coerce anybody against their will. And literally, this is what we're seeing. I mean, there were Nazi nurses and doctors hung for doing exactly what we're doing to humanity right now, saying, you will participate in an experiment or else you will lose your job. And, and we were taking away the freedom and sovereignty of people over their bodies and their minds as well. We're doing this through, we've had three options this year. We've had fear, suffering, and vaccine. Really, the option is hope, early treatment, and immune wellness. 
And we as a society have been subject to you know, a, a worse outcome of this disease because we haven't focused on some of the basic public health messages. Yes, as in some of the talks people have seen me give, we are a vitamin D deficient nation, magnesium and vitamin K2 as well. We're an obese nation, we're a metabolically unwell nation, and those have predisposed us to the poorer outcomes compared to um, other nations. And now we're trying to force people into a shot, and, and this is abject silliness, we're, we're trying to force people into a shot for last year's virus. This is Delta. This is, this is not Wuhan strain. This is Delta now. This is the India strain. But what you don't hear is Delta is... Uh, a less malevolent virus. Yes, it's spreading faster, certainly, but it's less virulent. So this virus, if you look at the data out of India, and you don't hear this in the media, sure, it's a big nation, a lot of people, and their raw numbers of infection and, and hospitalization and death seem high, but statistically, their death rate was one-seventh that of the Western world. That's good news. Viruses acquire benevolent mutations over time. We call it Muller's ratchet. As you look at the inbreeding of something over time, it becomes uh, less strong. This same concept is happening with this virus already. Now, it's interesting to note that in the UK right now, there are about 15,000 documented breakthrough cases a day in the vaccinated by the Delta variant. The Delta variant, these vaccines, based on the statistical modeling one would have to do to get approval for these as an emergency authorization, this shot would not be authorized for Delta statistically right now. Um, it, and when we see this data out of Israel, the, the, the other important thing I think that we're leaving out is the fact that Natural immunity is already broad across the nation. For every couple of cases that you know, we document in the laboratory, there are multiple people who have had the infection. We are not screening before vaccine. The huge amount of adverse reactions we're seeing are people who are infected with virus and getting a shot while they're infected, and then the antibodies you form are attacking the organs in your body. Also, those who have already mounted an immunity against SARS-CoV-2, if they get a vaccine, they are multiple-fold increased risk of adverse reactions because they've already had COVID, they already have an immunity, and it puts their immune system in a hyperimmune response. So we're negating natural immunity. In Israel just last week, a study came out that showed in breakthrough cases from those who had already had SARS-CoV-2 and natural immunity versus those that, who had had the vaccine, the, the recurrent infection rate in those that were naturally immune was eight one thousandths of a percent reacquisition of virus. The vaccinated got Delta strain and this virus at a seven times higher rate than those who are naturally immune, clearly indicating that natural immunity is a stronger immunity than a, a vaccine immunity from a leaky vaccine. This, isn't, this is not a sterilizing vaccine. It doesn't give you immunity you can still get COVID. And the other important thing that the CDC admits they're not doing, other nations are, listen to a great uh, lecture out of the UK today, is the vaccinated can still acquire the virus and can still transmit the virus. At least 25% of those vaccinated are still transmitting virus out of the UK data from yesterday. So these are leaky vaccines. We're trying to force people into, a, into an experiment with an investigational vaccine 
for an investigational vaccine against a virus from a year ago for a new strain that is out now. Now we can't play this whack-a-mole, oh, let's, which strain next, which strain next, we can barely get people, quote, vaccinated now. By the end of the year, maybe we're on strain zeta of the virus. So what do we need to focus on? We need to focus on early treatment of this virus. And it's widely available and it's cheap and it's generic and that's why it's not approved. Because if there were a treatment for this virus, they cannot have authorization for these vaccines, period. It states, I think about page three in the emergency authorization, it states clearly, you cannot authorize this investigational vaccine if there's an effective therapy for this virus. Well, many of my colleagues around the country and myself have worked on uh, early therapies for this virus. Dr. Peter McCullough out of Texas, the most published cardiologist in the world, um, and the most published cardiologist, uh, or the most published physician on COVID, over 50 uh, articles on COVID this past year, and he has focused on early treatment. The death rate in his cohort and those of us that have used the McCullough protocols is 86% lower than the hospitals, 86% lower. And prevention um, trials with many of these early treatments and prophylactic treatments out of Argentina, uh, Dr. Carvalho's study showed a 100% prevention of acquisition of SARS-CoV-2 on patients that were on uh, prophylactic ivermectin. And ivermectin has, it's a molecule, so I've been criticized in the media about speaking about this medication. The molecule doesn't read a textbook and say I can only treat parasites. This molecule, and this was a paper in Nature, one of the biggest scientific journals in the world, this molecule has 22 mechanisms of action against SARS-CoV-2, has seven or eight antiviral mechanisms, and it has multiple immune modification mechanisms. In Dr. Carvalho's study, two months of healthcare workers taking ivermectin once a week 800 individuals, zero got COVID. In the placebo control group of 400 people, 57% in the placebo group got COVID. That's how effective ivermectin was at preventing acquisition of SARS-CoV-2 in a hospital setting. You can't claim that for these vaccines. You know, these vaccines, you know, they claim 90, 95% uh, efficacy, really what that is, and I could get in, into statistics, that's, that's risk reduction, um, your, your relative risk. The, what they didn't do, and, and the FDA failed in this, and they, they allowed them not to submit the numbers for the absolute risk reduction, the ARR. So it literally takes 120 people to get two shots to decrease symptoms in one, one patient. And so, of those 120, how many people are gonna end up with autoimmune disease two to three years down the road? How many are gonna end up with cancer two to three years down the road, or four or five years? We don't know. But here's what I'm seeing in the laboratory already, and this is very, very concerning. Um, when we give these shots, we can look at the types of white blood cells in the body. We can look at your T cells, your B cells, the ratios, and, and you have a broad array of immune cells that work together to fight off viruses, to keep cancers in check. We're already seeing the signals in the laboratory of decreases of certain critically important T cells that you need, your innate immune system. It's, it's your Marines of your body, the first ones in, fighting off viruses, fighting off cancers. It's why kids have done phenomenally well and survived this virus at 100% rate statistically this year because they have a, an innate T cell immune response 
that has two to three times the activity of an adult T-cell immune response. They have two to three times the enzymes that throw the little hand grenades in the cells and blow up the infected cells compared to adults. And that's why kids have done so wonderfully against this virus. But what we're seeing in the laboratory after people get these shots, we're seeing a very concerning locked-in low profile of these important killer T cells that you want in your body. It's almost a, re a reverse HIV. In HIV, you lose your helper T cells, your CD4 cells. In this virus, post-vaccine, what we're seeing is a drop in your killer T cells, your CD8 cells. And what do CD8 cells do? They keep all other viruses in check. What am I seeing in the laboratory? I'm seeing an uptick of herpes family viruses. I'm seeing um, herpes, I'm seeing shingles, I'm seeing mono, I'm seeing a huge uptick in human papillomavirus uh, in the cervical biopsies and the cervical pap smears in women. In addition to that, there's a, a little infectious you know, bump that kids get called molluscum contagiosum. What do you need to keep that in check? You need CD8 uh, killer T cells. I am seeing a 20 times increase in individuals over the age of 50 of this little bump in rash. Um, you know, that's innocuous, but it, what it tells me is the immune status of these individuals who have gotten the shot. We're literally weakening the immune system of these individuals. Now, most concerning of all is there's a pattern of these types of immune cells in the body that keep cancer in check. Well, since January 1, in the laboratory, I've seen a 20 times increase of endometrial cancers over what I see on an annual basis. A 20 times increase. I'm not exaggerating at all. Because I, I look at my numbers year over year. I'm like, gosh, I've never seen this many uh, endometrial cancers before. I'm seeing invasive melanomas in younger patients. Normally, we catch those early in their thin melanomas. I'm seeing thick melanomas skyrocketing in the last month or two. Um, I'm already seeing the early signals and we are modifying the immune system to a weakened state. Great study out of Germany that looked at these profiles on young individuals after the Pfizer showing this locked in and we don't know how long. Maybe the immune system, you know, is going to regenerate and those ratios will go back up. But who's studying it? And where are the long-term trials? Two months, four months, how long is this profile locked in? We don't know. And how, how long is it gonna last, two, three years? What, what is gonna be the uptick in these solid tumor cancers over the next two, three, four, five years? We don't know, I can predict. I'm a, I'm a data analyst, I'm not a politician. I look at data and I'm already seeing concerning patterns. And so to say to somebody, in order to maintain your job, you need to put your body at risk and let us change your immune status for potentially a lifetime and put you at risk for autoimmune disease, cancer. Here's a, here's a very, very important one. In the Pfizer application to the FDA, now the, the problem with most of these shots is we didn't do animal trials before uh, doing human trials. The humans essentially were the guinea pigs. And in one of their addendums that they throw in, it shows their study on rats and fertility. And we've heard, you know, inklings within the media and some scientific reporting, well, what's going to be the fertility long-term outcome? The honest answer is we don't know. But in the Pfizer study, the fertility rate was decreased by 16%. Now, 16%, you think, yeah, that's not a whole lot. Well, rats are one of the most fertile creatures on the planet Earth. A 16% decrease in fertility in rats is at least a signal that says to us, we need to be hyper-cautious about what we're doing. And again, an experiment on humanity and to coerce somebody into an experiment in order to keep their gainful employment, it's a violation of all medical ethics. I mean, this is, this is pure malfeasance. 
uh, from administrators and and I, I, I think at some point my physician colleagues may wake up from their stupor and trance that they're in and reflect upon the harm that they're doing upon humanity. You know, we have a mantra, we have a narrative of, oh, suffering fear shot, suffering fear shot. Never in the humanity in the middle of a pandemic have we said, oh, let's vaccinate during a pandemic. No, you literally select for variants when you're vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic. It's immunologically illogical to do something of this sort. And we are, we are doing, doing something that is anti-science. We hear the science this year. Well, I'm a scientist. There's no such thing as the science. If, if there were the science, we would stop doing science. Science is hypothesizing, theorizing, testing, succeeding, failing, taking that hypothesis and theory and then remodifying and doing something again. That's what we need to be doing. We don't need to be willy-nilly pushing forward with something we don't know the outcomes of and subject people to it. Um, it it's unethical. You know, I took, a, I took an oath to first do no harm. That's psychological harm, physical harm, and financial harm to a patient. And I, I, I'm calling out my uh, physician colleagues within these large administrations and health system. You are violating your oath. You are violating your oath. You, you claim to care for humanity, but you are literally taking the opportunity to harm humanity. We're at a pandemic where we're at endemic levels right now. We're in a state of 1.7 million people, and we see maybe 100 cases a day of the virus right now around the state. That's not pandemic levels, that's endemic levels. Is the virus going to be with us? Yes. Well, we need to look at early treatments. We need to look at being honest with the population and give a public health message. Let's take care of our health. Let's optimize our immune health. Let's be less metabolically unwell. Let's, let's focus on natural health, natural immunity. Let's focus on if you get the virus, we're gonna treat you right away. We're not gonna send you home and say, okay, in five, seven, 10 days, when your lips are blue, you come to the hospital, we'll put you on a ventilator, give you a little bit of oxygen, a weak steroid, I'm calling you out on the steroids you're using, you're using the weakest one possible, and you're, you're afraid to look at the protocols of the frontline COVID critical care doctors, fltriplec.net. These are some of the premier uh, critical care doctors in the world. They have protocols. They're saving patients 70, 80, 90% more than you are in your hospitals right now. And you are following the government and the NIH, and you are following um, very weak protocols, and the government is about six to nine months behind on, the, on science, not the science. They're about six to nine months behind. It's time for you in the hospitals to catch up with the protocols that are far more successful than what you are doing. You know, the definition of stupidity is to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. Well, you know, I've talked to countless patients and their doctors won't do anything different. They're not being critical thinkers. They're not thinking outside of the box. They're not stepping into these realms of, okay, what we're doing isn't working. We can add this in. There's certainly no harm in doing it. You know, some of these early treatment medications are the safest medicines on the planet. One of them's been around almost four decades. The other, almost seven decades. And we have the safety profile, some of the safest drugs on earth on the WHO's list of most essential safest drugs necessary for humanity. And we have foolish physicians saying, oh gosh, you know, I need a randomized controlled placebo trial, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, it, it's a sugar pill if it doesn't work and it's a lifesaver if it does. And, and we're ignoring real science because out of 19,000 patients in studies on ivermectin and, you know, 26, 29 randomized controlled trials, there's a one in four quadrillion chance, one in four quadrillion chance statistically that this medication, this molecule does not have an effect in improving the outcomes in SARS-CoV-2. 
statistically. The meta-analyses, the a meta-analysis is the gold standard in medicine. You, you have some small trials, small trials, small trials, you add them all up, and then you look at the statistical power of all those trials put together. The gold standard is a meta-analysis. The meta-analytical data independently done out of five nations shows that ivermectin works against SARS-CoV-2. Given late, you decrease death rate by about 68 to 70%. Given early, you decrease that death rate by 88 to 96%. So we need to look at early treatments. We need to quit subjecting people to a shot for the witch. Many are dying. Over 9,000 reported to VAERS um, in in the last six months, 9,048 deaths reported. That's a red flag system. We're ignoring the forest on fire and the smoke signal. And you cannot approve through the FDA stop valve a vaccine after 25 deaths. That's the FDA stop valve. If they see 25 deaths in a medication drug vaccine trial, they pull it. I mean, there may be a reason that they're keeping this as an experiment and as an emergency authorization, because if it were to go for approval, unless they pull some shenanigans, um, this would be pulled immediately and should be, in my medical opinion, should be. And, and we're ignoring the statistics of how well people are doing against this virus. Under age 50, 99.9% .9 survival rate. Those who are passing are, are ones with comorbidities. And if we did early treatments instead of our our abject, weak uh, approach to this virus, uh, that would statistically be about 100% survival under age 50. So we need to have courage, and we need to have logic, and we need to step outside of these realms of, of coercion, because this is a survivable, survivable, excuse me, a survivable virus, and, and we're not getting that hopeful message. And then, and, and, and in addition to that, you know, we're getting these, well, gosh, we need to vaccinate the kids. No, we don't. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. They survived this at 100%. We are seeing a 200 times increase in young men, increase of inflammation of the heart over baseline, what we would see on an annual basis in North America. Once your heart is damaged, it's damaged for a lifetime. Your heart cells don't grow back. That's, that's scarring that happens next. Don't let your child near these shots. And, and again, we don't know the long-term immune effects. We don't know the long-term cancer effects. We don't know the long-term fertility effects. Any university that is mandating this for their students, it is criminal. It is criminal. It is criminal. These, these young, healthy individuals are at no risk for death from this virus. We have treatments, and we are ruining the health of a generation and killing them as well. And this is unethical. This is a violation of all morality, let alone medical ethics. This is immoral. This is immoral. I'm calling you out. This is immoral. Step back and look at the data. Forget the politics. Forget your business. Forget, you know, forget who you think you are. At the end of the day, we're all human. And this is immoral to be doing this to young individuals in our society and our population. It's Iscariant, and it's a lie. Um, and good, it's a common cold in the unvaccinated. The majority of people, if you're, if you're healthy and well, great. It's turning into what all coronaviruses become over time. It's turning into a common cold for most people. If you have risk factors, look, I'm not, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm, I'm pro-good science. You know, your body, your choice. If you want to be a subject in an experiment and you think it's going to be a benefit to you, 
your body, your choice, be fully informed of what the risks are. I don't think we need to be coercing people into a shot where one of the potential side effects is death. In order to keep your job, you have to get a shot for the witch. One of the side effects is death. Is that right? That's not moral, that's not ethical. The Delta variant, I call them scariants. They're 997 to 99.9% .9 the same virus. And again, I'll go back to an earlier point. It's a benevolent mutation. It is acting more like a common cold. Why do we have runny nose as one of the symptoms now for this virus? Because it's acting slightly differently. It's weakening. It's not killing people at a higher rate. But those who've been vaccinated are getting Delta at a higher rate than those who have natural immunity. So viruses always mutate. And it's going to be among us for a long time probably as a an endemic buzz level. So instead of thinking, okay, well, let's chase chase this variant, this scariant with a shot. I like to call them samians. It's the same virus. This isn't SARS-CoV-3 yet. Um, now here's, here, here's an immune problem. We form an antibody to this virus. An antibody is forever once you form it. If you have a good antibody, fantastic, great. Grandma still has immunity to measles from when she was a kid. But if you form a bad antibody and you do end up with SARS-CoV-3 two, three, four years from now, that, that antibody, and this is called immune priming, you're now primed with an antibody that down the road is your enemy because now you're immune primed to hyperreact to the next variant of this virus or this next basically speciation of the virus, the SARS-CoV-3. In the animal trials with SARS-CoV-1, we learned if you vaccinate the animals with a spike protein against SARS-CoV-1, they formed an antibody. Wonderful, great, look, an immune response. However, when they were exposed to wild-type virus down the road, a high percentage of those animals died very quickly. And in another percentage, in a, in a mouse study, they had 100% lung inflammation of a particular type, uh, eosinophil, a type of very inflammatory white blood cell in the lungs of those mice. So you may form an antibody and say, hooray, look, we're forming immunity within this population. But at the end of the day, when exposed to something different enough than what the vaccine was, you are damaging those individuals. We know those signals from SARS-CoV-1. We've seen this in, in cat coronavirus vaccines where cats ended up with this horrible inflammation swelling of the stomach and about 30% of the cats died. So we know once you prime somebody with an antibody and that antibody is good, great. But if you prime them with an antibody that is not good, sit back and pull out the popcorn because we're gonna be seeing something horrific happening immunologically to a population down the road. The honest answer is we don't know to what degree, but we do know the history of this and history is one of the best teachers that we have. It's let's look at the history of this family of viruses. This isn't influenza. This is not influenza. This isn't a common cold. This is a different family of viruses, and we know our success with other vaccines, with other viruses, that's fine. But this one, we have a very horrific track record with coronavirus vaccines and mammal trials, and there's a reason the FDA never let um, coronavirus SARS-CoV-1 vaccines come to the market and never let MERS vaccines come to the market. Every time they saw the signals and they said, this is too dangerous for humanity. Well, this virus is 80% the same as SARS-CoV-1. Why would they not have that same mindset now? We know how horrifically SARS-CoV-1 and MERS vaccines uh, failed. And now without long-term safety data, we're pushing forward an investigational vaccine on a population without knowing those long-term signals.
It's a crime against humanity, period. It hasn't been lost on me that so many healthcare practitioners, the people who are administering the vaccine or seeing the effects of the vaccine, don't want this shot, right? Even if you're not a data person, you can see that they've made this decision for themselves. They're willing to risk their career over it. They don't want to have the shot. Even if you're not a data person, that should tell you something, very pointed something, that there are certain people who don't want to be an experiment and maybe somebody should second guess that, right? So what would you say to the healthcare practitioners who are afraid of losing their license, who are afraid of losing their careers, but they want to take a stand and they're looking for some kind of direction? I'm sure they're coming to you like they're coming to me, like they're, they're asking, help me, what do I do, how do I do it, and you know, give me some direction, right? That's what I hear all day long. So what are you saying to people when they're reaching out to you? Three things. Number one, natural immunity is better than a vaccine immunity. So if you've had SARS-CoV-2 and it's time for the establishment to wake up, it, it's there. If you, and a lot of healthcare workers have already had SARS-CoV-2. They are more immune than the vaccinated. So that should be equal in this medical social uh, status that they're trying to invoke. If you have had SARS-CoV-2, you have a broader immunity than anyone who's gotten the vaccine because you have antibodies against the spike, the envelope, the membrane, the nucleocapsid. You have hundreds of antibodies compared to maybe dozens from the vaccine. So number one, you have a broader immunity if you've had SARS-CoV-2. Okay, if you haven't, well, there are plenty of people with underlying health conditions. This shot is clearly a contraindication to many people with underlying health conditions as well. Now, I think another important point is many people have religious convictions that, you know, under the Civil Rights Act, you cannot be questioned on your religious convictions. You have a right to refuse based on religious grounds. Pfizer, Moderna don't contain aborted fetal cells, but they were developed on aborted fetal cells and they were proved and processed on aborted fetal cells. J&J &J is grown on aborted fetal cells and may contain human DNA as well as human protein per their application to the FDA. J&J &J has uh, human fetal DNA and protein in it, period. Moderna and Pfizer were developed using aborted fetal cells. I think for many of us that matters. So there's another religious argument. Number one, natural immunity. Number two, plenty of people have underlying health conditions that make them you know, at a very uh, high increased risk for adverse reactions from these shots. And number three, on religious grounds or on just moral and ethical grounds alone. It doesn't even have to be religious if you're not religious, but on moral and ethical grounds alone, that those three should be an exemption. You need to speak out. You need to stand up. There are those of us fighting this insanity, but you need to join us. And I know we're banding together. Um, but again, moral, ethics, we're throwing them out the window for something we don't know that the long-term outcomes for. And, the, and this is, it's an absurdity what we're experiencing. It's time for people to wake up, it's time for providers to stand up, and it's time for us to band together. Now before I play the Biden and State Department clips, I want you to understand that when you have a company that is barely able to keep it together, Oh, they may have a thousand employees, but there's only going to be a hundred that actually know what they're doing. Very few people can rise to the level that you need, for example, at Apple in their research and development department. That group of people is completely separate and segregated from everybody else. That building is not in the big round spaceship. It's off to the side. 
people that create, people that are true academics, people who are true scientists, people who are true forecasters cannot be subjected to the whims and the tides, the fancies and the fads of the day. When it comes to making a chip, it's hard work. It's a lot of mathematics. It's engineering. And creating a drug is, in essence, mathematics and engineering, period. Forecasting is the same thing. Again, just because you have correlation doesn't mean it's causation. So what we are looking at here at all of the companies that I control, what we do is we're looking at, okay, if company X is privately held, they're not publicly held, and they're under pressure by the government and other financial firms, including banks, to mandate vaccines to all of their workers, can they withstand that pressure? Are they taking federal grant and aid as well as subsidized bonds and lending from organizations? Do they have government contracts that can be pulled that would not decimate, which is 10%, but utterly annihilate the company? This is how you do the research, folks. In addition to which, what we're looking at, and I'm studying constantly, you have a company that capitulates, but then you have 1%, 2 or 3% of the people who are smarter than the average cat. And remember, if you heard the podcast recently, and you can go online and see it, people with legitimate PhDs, I'm not talking about these hogwash PhDs, I mean legitimate PhDs. Oi, hogwash. Yeah, not, they're not, they don't have that. That hogwash PhD, they got a legitimate academic PhD. The hesitancy to get a vaccine and get a shot is sky high compared to the rank and file dumbbells, dimwits, midwits, and followers who drink the Kool-Aid if they were with Jim Jones. You may not like that, but it's the truth. So people who have the ability to really, truly, critically think and sit back and really dig into it. They're looking at this situation as... Mitch, there's something you're going to have to understand. Compared to you, most people have the IQ of a carrot. They, they see most people as carrots. Now, if you ran out and got the vaccine, God bless you, I don't care. This is the thing I've always said, I don't care. But I do want you to understand, I view you as having the ability to infect me with a variant but I know that I have the immunities because I know I had COVID back in the fall. I know I had another little touch of something in, in January. But I have no problem getting out and seeing people. I'm fine. You have to build that. And I know I've, I've talked to doctors that said, nope, you cannot develop the same type of immunity naturally. You have to get it through a shot. I just, I just literally can't believe that these people have MDs. Now, if I lose some clients from that, I don't care because my job is to be non-judgmental when it comes to emotions. Look at the facts and then pay attention to what people are doing. You have a company that has a one or two or three percent critical workforce drop off. That company could be screwed. When you look at law enforcement, I've said this before, the number of law enforcement officers who are saying, I'm done, I'm out of here. The loss of institutional knowledge is huge. So you got to sit back sometimes and go, who is facilitating this? I'm not going to get into that. Definitely not going to get into that publicly. One-to-one, -one I will. Okay, so with that, always remember, always remember, never forget, you can become involved. Take a look at uh, one of our questions if you want to get involved in it. I think uh, the current question is, if, uh, do you have a go bag and do you keep it with you in your car? If you'd like to answer that, that would be great. 
And so with that, let's uh, kill a grand total of 18 seconds. And um, hang on a second. Let's do this. I'll be back in uh, 30 seconds, get a cup of coffee, and then we'll, we'll tee up the, uh, the, the items that we have here from uh, President Biden. This is not abandonment. This is not an evacuation. Uh, this is not the wholesale withdrawal. What this is, uh, is a reduction in the size of our civilian footprint. This is a drawdown. Mr. President, thank you very much. Your own intelligence community has assessed that the Afghan government will likely collapse. That is not true. Is it, can you please clarify what they have told you about whether that will happen or not? That is not true. They did not, they didn't, did not reach that conclusion. What is the level of confidence that they have that it will not collapse? A while ago, we explained to you veterans and to your families how important it is for patients in Veterans Administration tuberculosis hospitals to cooperate with the doctors. Now, you see, if a tuberculosis patient insists on leaving the hospital prematurely against the advice of his doctor, well, that's his right. But you can see how dangerous this could be. Danger to the patient himself in that he drags out his illness, makes his own recovery more difficult. Danger that he may expose to serious infection those he loves best, his family at home. Now, therein lies a great responsibility for tuberculosis patients and for their families. Following the doctor's advice may be hard, but it's sure to be wise. Remember, your doctor wants you to get well just as soon as possible. He's doing his part conscientiously. Do yours. Accept his professional advice. Stay in the hospital until your VA doctor tells you that you're well enough to go home. This has been the Paul Truesdell Podcast, sponsored by Fixed Cost Financial and Longview Forecasting. For more information about fixed-cost financial and long-view forecasting, visit the website for the conglomerate of Truesdell Companies at truesdell.net or call the corporate offices for the Truesdell Companies at 212-433-2525. That's 212-433-2525. All rights reserved. Why are camels by far America's most popular cigarette? Two of the reasons are flavor and mildness. No other cigarette has camels' rich, full flavor. And no other cigarette offers this proof of mildness. In a coast-to-coast -coast test of hundreds of people with normal throats, noted throat specialists reported not one single case of throat irritation due to smoking camels. Try camels yourself. Then you'll know why Camel leads all other brands by billions of cigarettes per year.
What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? That question was asked a few years ago of 113,597 doctors. The brand name most was Camel. Recently, that question was again asked of tens of thousands of doctors across the country. Doctors in all branches of medicine. And again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to these nationwide surveys, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Friends, smoke the cigarette so many doctors enjoy. Change to Camel for 30 days and see how mild, how flavorful, how enjoyable a cigarette can be. Yes, change to Camels for 30 days and you'll stay with Camels from then on. How mild, how mild, how mild, how mild mild can a cigarette be? Make the Camel 30 days To find out how well camels agree with the throats of smokers, this far-reaching test was made. Hundreds of people from coast to coast, people with normal throats, smoked only camels for 30 days. Each week, leading throat specialists examined the throats of these smokers. They made 2,470 examinations and reported not one single case of throat irritation. Due to smoking camels. Try camels for 30 days and see how mild, how flavorful, how enjoyable a cigarette can be. How mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? Smoke camels and see. Here's Dick Powell with a special message. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of camels have sent more than 198 million gift camels to our armed forces. This week, gift camels go to hospitalized servicemen and veterans at... Veterans Hospitals, Framingham, Massachusetts, and Durban, Michigan. U.S. Naval Hospital, San Diego, California. And to all hospitals operated for the U.S. Air Forces in the Far East. Now until next week, enjoy camels. I always do. A.B.C. Always buy Chesterfield, the milder cigarette. And Chesterfield leaves a clean, fresh taste in your mouth. A. Always milder. B. Better tasting. C. Color smoking. A. B. C. Always by Chesterfields. They satisfy. Chesterfield presents Arthur Godfrey Time. Arthur Godfrey and all the little Godfrey. Jeanette Davis, the Mariners, and Archie Blyer and his orchestra. Here's a real solution to many of your Christmas shopping problems. If your friends smoke a long cigarette, give the best of long cigarettes, Fatima. Give Fatima for quality. The name Fatima has always stood for the best in cigarette quality. Give Fatima for flavor. Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. Give Fatima. They're extra mild. Yes, Fatima is the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. Yes, extra mild. So give Fatima for Christmas in the attractive golden yellow carton. It's the long cigarette that has doubled and redoubled its smokers. 
Yes, more and more smokers every day agree. Fatima is the best of all long cigarettes. If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. Fatima is the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. And that's why Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima is doubling and redoubling its smokers. So, if you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of all long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. Fatima is the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. And that's why Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima is doubling and redoubling its smokers. So, if you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of all long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. To a goalie, it's a save, save, save to a surfer. It's a wave, wave, wave to the colonel. It's a regiment to a smoker. It's a tent. The days of tent. The days of tent. The days of tent. More taste, fine tobacco. To a gourmet. It's a special sauce to a cowboy. It's his favorite sauce to a hostess. It's a compliment to a smoker. It's a Kent. The taste of Kent. The taste of Kent. The taste of Kent. More taste by tobacco. If you smoke a filter cigarette, try the taste of Kent. Okay, lunch is over. Now back to work. Hiya, Mr. Flintstone. Greetings, Rocky, my boy. Pack of Winston's, please. Ah, you like them Winston cigarettes, huh, Mr. Flintstone? Mm, but, of course, they really got something. You bet your life. Folks who really enjoy smoking know it's what's up front that counts. And that's where Winston steps out ahead of the crowd with their exclusive filter blend. Choice golden tobaccos, specially selected and specially processed for filter smoking. Hold it, hold it. You know what you mean? What are you pitching Winston's at me for? You know I never smoke nothing else. Just practicing, Mr. Flintstone. Everybody knows that. Winston tastes good, like a cigarette should. Yeah. See you soon, Rocky. I will perform transorbital lobotomy on ten patients within an hour. In the 1930s, a new brain surgery, like the one portrayed here in the movie Francis, was brought to the United States, the lobotomy. Only a little more dangerous than operating to remove an infected tooth. It was performed on mentally ill patients all over the country. Lobotomy gets them home. Hailed by the media as a miracle cure. Life magazine, the New York Times, Time magazine, they loved it. Lobotomy was felt to be mainstream science. It wins the Nobel Prize. But more than 40,000 surgeries later, the brutal truth about lobotomy would come to light. 
And they were basically going in and mushing around brain tissue. And unfortunately, in many cases, leaving patients worse off. Seven decades later, a look back at the lobotomy story shows how far our understanding of the brain has come and how far we still have to go. I have, in fact, uh, at Sick Children's and also my colleague down in Hamilton has isolated the what we call the A2 Hong Kong 68 strain of influenza. Which is the one that happened last year and is still on the rounds. That's there? right. We had this virus in Toronto uh, in December of 68 and in January of uh, 69. And then it departed these shores and visited uh, the United Kingdom and the continent. Uh, and then <coughs> off it went down for the uh, summer, for the winter season, uh, down into the southern hemisphere, and came back this time to North America. Uh, this time rather to the continent first, and uh, the debt has been repaid from last year, and it's now visiting this part of the world from the continent. Well, since you know it's peregrination so well, <laughs> why can't it be controlled? Well, why can't it be controlled is because new people are born all the time into this world of ours, and they are, uh, they are not immune. So here we've got a, a group of susceptibles. Uh, furthermore, even if you get the virus one year, your immunity is only going to be good for two or three years. In addition to this, this particular virus, the A virus, changes its outer skin, and to all intents and purposes, it's a new virus. So we've got this problem to contend with. What about the problem of perhaps getting vaccinated or immunized against the flu? That seems to be quite popular in certain parts of North America. Well, I think this is a, a free choice matter, really. Uh, immunization, uh, according to a lot of authorities, and uh, I would go along with this, uh, if I can be permitted to join this group, uh, would say that a healthy adult, really, uh, flu vaccination is not really indicated unless that healthy adult happens to be in some key or service situation where his going off work during the course of an influenza epidemic would um, compromise some uh, valuable activity. On the other hand, I think... Uh, certain people whose uh, bodily systems are compromised in some ways by pre-existing disease. I think these people are possibly good candidates. 60 Minutes Rewind If this year of tsunamis, earthquakes, and hurricanes has taught us anything, it's that worst-case scenarios do sometimes happen. Now with winter upon us, the latest thing to worry about is the avian flu, a particularly deadly bird virus that is ravaging the poultry industry in Asia and has on rare occasions infected humans, killing half of its victims. Fewer than 100 people have died worldwide, yet the World Health Organization calls it the most serious health threat facing the planet, greater than AIDS or tuberculosis. Because humans have no immunity to the virus and because there are no proven drugs or vaccines to stop it, it has the potential to cause an influenza pandemic similar to the one that killed 50 million people in 1918. It may not happen, but billions of dollars are being spent to sequence its genes, track its movements, and slow its progress in what many people believe could be a race against time. So we set out for Europe and Asia chasing the flu. It's called the H5N1 virus, a primitive piece of genetic material so small it can barely be seen under the most powerful microscopes. Like all flu viruses, it is constantly evolving, and every day scientists record the latest changes as it moves silently around the globe in the bellies of birds. It has infected the waterfowl now migrating the flyways over Southeast Asia, 
This is the front line in the battle against avian flu, where the most cases have been identified and the most people have died. Ducks and geese have passed it along to domestic poultry, and humans have gotten it from sick birds. So far, the virus can't pass easily from human to human, but a single deadly mutation could change that and trigger the deaths of tens of millions of people. Time is the essence. Dr. Margaret Chan is the World Health Organization's chief of pandemic influenza in Geneva. She calls it a warning signal from nature. For the first time in history, we are seeing a pandemic unfolding in front of our eyes. No one has more experience with H5N1 than Dr. Chan. She was director of health in Hong Kong when the first outbreak occurred there in 1997. This is a virus that affects mostly birds. Uh, it has killed fewer than 100 people. Yet you say it is the most serious health threat facing the world. Why? We are seeing very worrying signs. The geographical spread of this virus, number one, and number two, it has extended beyond the usual sort of poultry sector. It is infecting cats, it's causing death in tigers, and so on and so forth. Now, we are getting all these signals, and we are tracking the changes of the virus. What is it that concerns you so much about this particular virus? If you look at the disease it causes in human beings, it's very severe, with a very high, you know, uh, fatality rate. More than about half of the people infected died. We have not seen anything quite like it. And also, this virus caused unprecedented spread in the animal sector. And we have never seen this in the entire history of mankind. The best minds in health, science, and veterinary medicine have been mobilized to try and stop the bird flu before it can become highly contagious in humans. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Nearly 200 million chickens exposed to the virus have already been destroyed. Yet in the past few months, the H5N1 virus has spread from Asia into Europe. Every morning at the World Health Organization's Strategic Health Operations Center, scientists and public health officials gather to go over the latest information and monitor every suspected human infection. They call it the morning prayers. The man in charge is Dr. Mike Ryan. Most of these cases represent a situation in which the virus has breached a barrier between animals and humans. And every time it breaches that barrier, is a potential opportunity for a pandemic to start. So each and every one of those cases is important and vital for us to understand what's going on. There have been several cases in Vietnam and Thailand where the virus seems to have spread from human to human, but only to close family members and caregivers. Then the transmission stopped. What we haven't seen is sustained, efficient human-to-human -human transmission. We have not seen chains of infection, and of that we're sure. And that's what we need to look out for. To do it, Ryan is building an international surveillance system with ministries of health all over the world that he hopes would be able to detect the trigger point of a pandemic, the first signs that the virus has become contagious in humans. The plan calls for medical SWAT teams to be flown to the site to quarantine the area and begin administering millions of doses of a drug called Tamiflu, the strongest antiviral available. We won't have time possibly at the beginning of a pandemic, even to get laboratory confirmation. Uh, it may take days to get laboratory confirmation. We may have to make this judgment on the basis of the existence of a cluster that's spreading quickly. And that signal will be very strong. You'll see the disease extend very quickly from two to four to 10 to 20 
to 30, 50 and beyond number of, and when you start to see that uh, mini uh, mini explosion of cases, we're going to have a very, very short time in which to do something about that. Very how, short. How long? The, the intervention time will be measured from days to weeks. I, I think no longer than a month at the, at, the, at, the, at the extreme. So if you don't stop it or get it controlled in 30 days, you've lost it. Yeah, and nobody knows whether that can be done. How good is your surveillance system? My fear is that there are blind spots, that there are blind spots in our surveillance system at national level, and that creates blind spots globally. One of those blind spots is here in Cambodia, the poorest of the Southeast Asian countries where the virus is most active. Migratory waterfowl have already infected domestic ducks and chickens, which is a major source of protein for most of the people here. Many of them live in poverty with no access to health care. So far, the virus has killed four people here, all of them thought to have been exposed to the blood or droppings of infected chickens and ducks, which are still slaughtered and sold in open-air markets all over the country. And doctors here are as scarce as hen's teeth. One of them is Dr. Lee Savon, the Cambodian government's director of disease surveillance, the man in charge of stopping the avian flu here. If this were to happen today, are you ready? Are you prepared? We are ongoing prepared, but we are not really good prepared yet. If there are signs that the disease is spreading among humans, Dr. Savan's job is to report the first outbreaks to officials in Geneva and wait for international help to arrive. But when we were there last month, he said he had fewer than 150 doses of the antiviral drug Tamiflu for a country of 13 million people. Is there Tamiflu or are, are there antiviral drugs in the provinces? One dose per province only, but we need more. One dose per province? Yeah, one dose that per province. That means in each province you could yeah, give, yeah. treat one, one person? One, one person only. One dose is in one person, one patient. This is uh, my office. Okay. Sort of cramped. He and his six-member staff work out of this small room in the third floor of the health ministry where he keeps an emergency supply of biohazard suits piled in his office. The power goes off every night at 7 p.m. If he's called to a pandemic emergency, he'll have to take a taxi. He's supposed to be in charge of the national reporting system, but there is only one phone for the entire staff. So this is the only phone for the office? Yes, phone. And you just pass it around? Yeah, pass around here, yeah. The national pandemic hotline is his personal cell phone. But when you travel outside the city, you realize it may not matter. In most villages, there are no telephones to call Dr. Savon. And even if there were, Dr. Meg Miller, an Australian who is the World Health Organization's epidemiologist in Cambodia, says there's little awareness of the avian flu once you get out to the countryside. No shortage of chickens here, I can see. And ducks. And ducks. You can see the ducklings here in the little pen. Sometimes the chickens come in and jump back out again. And so it's a real mixture of, of ducks and chickens and lots of different animals. Looks like members of the family. Yeah, they are members of the family. There are lots of things in Cambodia that kill people. Every year, thousands die from TB, malaria, tetanus and other infections. Bird flu is not yet a major concern. People don't believe in avian influenza. Do you think there have been human cases of avian flu here that have not been detected? In Cambodia, probably. It's possible that we have missed cases because we won't pick up every single case occurring singly. Do you think the surveillance system is good enough here to detect it? 
We're not going to pick the first case or the second case. I don't think we'll pick the first jump. Um, we're just not going to. What we're hoping to be able to do, and I, I'm fairly confident we should pick this up, if we get a family cluster, it will worry people. And so they'll go looking for answers. So hopefully in that looking for answers, they'll get to the right people and the alert will be triggered. What's the quality of healthcare like in a village like this? Very primitive. Thankfully in this village, it, it's not too difficult to get to a health centre. I mean, whether someone is there is, is the big issue. And also whether they're aware of, of the symptoms of bird flu. The skill level for healthcare workers here is rudimentary at best. Less than half the provinces have received training sessions in the WHO plan for flu surveillance, response and containment. Is that plan workable in Cambodia? It might be. I mean, there are a lot of logistical issues around mobilising a lot of medicine and a lot of people in a short space of time. I mean, we could get the medicine to Phnom Penh, but then how do we get the medicine from Phnom Penh Airport out to the province? And one of the things we need to do with this um, sort of containment strategy is put a ring around the village and make sure no one goes into the village and no one goes out, which is, is going to be the most difficult thing to control because people are just used to going everywhere. Realistically, is the Cambodian government and the Ministry of Health up to that kind of an operation? Um, at the moment, if it was to happen tomorrow, not yet. The story will continue after this. But neither is the rest of the world. If H5N1 were to become highly contagious in humans this winter, it could spread to every country in the world in a matter of months. There is no way that governments, health organizations, and pharmaceutical manufacturers would be able to produce sufficient amounts of the strongest antiviral drugs or vaccines to contain it. Right now, and we all admit that, right now, if we had an explosion of an H5N1, we would not be prepared for that. Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health is the nation's point man on the avian flu. The NIH is now testing a vaccine that's made from the current bird virus, but whether it would work against some future mutant strain that is contagious in humans is anybody's guess. This virus has been around since 1997. Right. Right. And there are people who say if it hasn't made the right. jump yet right. to the point where it can infect humans, right. it's not going to. It is conceivable that this virus has already reached its dead end and these little blips of infections are just things that are manifestations of where it would like to go but it's never going to get there. On the other hand, the more this virus is infecting and killing chickens and the more people that get infected by it, that that's going to give the virus a greater chance of doing what you hope it never does. The White House has proposed a $7.1 billion program to prepare for the pandemic. Plans are underway to stockpile drugs and medical supplies and to develop treatment plans, quarantine strategies, and better and quicker ways to manufacture vaccines. But what money can't buy is time. You see this whole business with the H5N1 virus as an exercise to try and improve our capabilities of fighting off a pandemic? Well, I don't see it as an exercise because it could be the big one. It could be, and if it is, all rushing around, doing what we need to do, pushing the envelope is not for naught or in vain. In your opinion, right. what do you think the chances are that it could happen this flu season? The probability of next month a H5N1 turning into a widely disseminated 1918 version 
given where we are now, in my opinion, is low. Is it zero? No. Since it isn't, I'm assuming the worst case scenario will happen. Dr. Fauci says it is the only way to proceed, but it's not the only possible outcome. It's conceivable that a human pandemic of H5N1 could emerge from the masses in Asia and turn out to be no more deadly than a bad case of the flu, which people forget kills on the average 36,000 Americans every year. The flu season is upon us. Which type will we worry about this year? And what kind of shots will we be told to take? Remember the swine flu scare of 1976? That was the year the U.S. government told us all that swine flu could turn out to be a killer that could spread across the nation. And Washington decided that every man, woman, and child in the nation should get a shot to prevent a nationwide outbreak, a pandemic. Well, 46 million of us obediently took the shot. And now 4,000 Americans are claiming damages from Uncle Sam amounting to three and a half billion dollars because of what happened when they took that shot. By far the greatest number of the claims, two-thirds of them, are for neurological damage or even death, allegedly triggered by the flu shot. We pick up the story back in 1976 when the threat posed by the swine flu virus seemed very real indeed. This virus was the cause of a pandemic in 1918 and 1919 that resulted in over half a million deaths in the United States as well as 20 million deaths around the world. See how easy it is to... Thus, the U.S. government's publicity machine was cranked into action to urge all America to protect itself against the swine flu menace. Influenza is serious business. During major flu epidemics, millions of people are sick and thousands die. Well, this year, you can get protection. The vaccines are safe, easy to take, and they can protect you against flu. So roll up your sleeve. Protect yourself. One of those who did roll up her sleeve was Judy Roberts. She was perfectly healthy, an active woman, when in November of 1976, she took her shot. Two weeks later, she says, she began to feel a numbness starting up her legs. I joked about it at that time. I said, I'll be numb to the knees by Friday as if this keeps up. By the following week, I was totally paralyzed. So completely paralyzed, in fact, that they had to operate on her to enable her to breathe. And for six months, Judy Roberts was a quadriplegic. The diagnosis? A neurological disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS for short. These neurological diseases are little understood. They affect people in different ways. As you can see in these home movies taken by a friend, Judy Roberts' paralysis confined her mostly to a wheelchair for over a year. But this disease can even kill. Indeed, there are 300 claims now pending from the families of GBS victims who died, allegedly as a result of the swine flu shot. In other GBS victims, the crippling effects diminish and all but disappear. But for Judy Roberts, progress back to good health has been painful and partial. Now, I notice that your smile, Judy, is a little bit constricted. Yes, it is. Is it different from what it used to be? Very different. I have uh, a greatly decreased mobility in my lips. And uh, I can't drink through a straw on the right-hand side. I can't blow out birthday candles. Uh, I don't whistle anymore, for which my husband is grateful. It may be a little difficult for you to answer this question, but have you recovered as much as you are going to recover? Yes, this, this is it. So you will now have a legacy of braces on your legs for the rest of your life? 
Yes. The weakness in my hands will stay, and the leg braces will stay. So Judy Roberts and her husband have filed a claim against the U.S. government. They're asking $12 million, though they don't expect to get nearly that much. Judy, why did you take the flu shot? I'd never taken any other flu shots, but I felt like this was going to be a major epidemic. And the only way to prevent a major epidemic of a, a really deadly variety of flu was for everybody to be immunized. Where did this so-called deadly variety of flu, where did it first hit back in 1976? It began right here at Fort Dix in New Jersey in January of that year when a number of recruits began to complain of respiratory ailments, something like the common cold. An army doctor here sent samples of their throat cultures to the New Jersey Public Health Lab to find out just what kind of bug was going around here. One of those samples was from a private David Lewis who had left his sickbed to go on a forced march. Private Lewis had collapsed on that march, and his sergeant had revived him by mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. But the sergeant showed no signs of illness. A few days later, Private Lewis died. If this disease is so potentially fatal that it's going to kill a young, healthy man, a middle-aged schoolteacher doesn't have a prayer. The New Jersey lab identified most of those soldiers' throat cultures as the normal kind of flu virus going around that year, but they could not make out what kind of virus was in the culture from the dead soldier and from four others who were sick. So they sent those cultures to the Federal Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, for further study. A few days later, they got the verdict, swine flu. But that much publicized outbreak of swine flu at Fort Dix involved only Private Lewis, who died, and those four other soldiers who recovered completely without the swine flu shot. If I had known at that time that the boy had been in a sickbed, got up, went out on a forced march, and then collapsed and died, I would never have taken a shot. The rationale for our recommendation was not on the basis of the death of uh, a single individual, but it was on the basis that when we do see a change in the characteristics of the influenza virus, it is a massive uh, public health problem in this country. Dr. David Sensor, then head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, is now in private industry. He devised the swine flu program, and he pushed it. You began to give flu shots to the American people in October of 76. October 1st. By that time, how many cases of swine flu around the world had been reported? There had been uh, several reported, but none confirmed. There had been cases in... Uh, uh, Australia that were reported by the press, uh, by the news media. There were cases in... Uh, None confirmed. Did you ever uncover any other outbreaks of swine flu anywhere in the world? No. Now, nearly everyone was to receive the shot in a public health facility where a doctor might not be present. Therefore, it was up to the CDC to come up with some kind of official consent form, giving the public all the information it needed about the swine flu shot. This form stated that the swine flu vaccine had been tested. What it didn't say was that after those tests were completed, the scientists developed another vaccine. And that was the one given to most of the 46 million who took the shot. That vaccine was called X53A. Was X53A ever field tested? Uh, I, I can't say I would have to. Uh, it wasn't. I don't know. Well, I would think that you're in charge of the program. I would have to check uh, the records. I haven't uh, looked at this in some time. The information form, the consent form, 
was also supposed to warn people about any risks of serious complications following the shot. But did it? No, I had never heard of any reactions other than a sore arm, fever, this sort of thing. Judy Roberts' husband, Gene, also took the shot. Yes, I looked at that document. I signed it. Nothing on there said I was going to have a heart attack or I'd get Guillain-Barre, which I'd never heard of. What if people from the government, from the Center for Disease Control, what if they had indeed known about it? What would be your feeling? They should have told us. Did anyone ever come to you and say, you know something, fellas? There's the possibility of neurological damage if you get into a mass immunization program. No. No one ever did? No. Do you know Michael Hatwick? Yes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Hatwick directed the surveillance team for the swine flu program at the CDC. His job was to find out what possible complications could arise from taking the shot and to report his findings to those in charge. Did you know ahead of time, Dr. Hatwick, that there had been case reports of neurological disorders, neurological illness, apparently associated with the injection of influenza vaccine? Absolutely. You did? Yes. How'd you know that? By review of the literature. So you told your superiors, the men in charge of the swine flu immunization program, about the possibility of neurological disorders? Absolutely. What would you say if I told you that your superiors say that you never told them about the possibility of neurological complications? That's nonsense. I can't believe that they would say that they did not know that there were neurological illnesses associated with influenza vaccination. That simply is not true. We did know that. I've said that Dr. Hatwick has never told me of uh, his feelings on this subject. Uh, and he's lying. I guess you would have to um, make that assumption. Then why does this report from your own agency, dated July 1976, list neurological complications as a possibility? I think the uh, consensus of uh, the scientific community was that the evidence relating neurologic disorders to influenza immunization that they did not feel that this association was a real one. You didn't feel it was necessary to tell the people that information? Uh, I think that uh, over the, the years we have tried to inform the American people as, as fully as possible. As part of informing Americans about the swine flu threat, Dr. Sensor's CDC also helped create the advertising to get the public to take the shot. Let me read to you from one of your own agencies memos planning the campaign to urge Americans to take the shot. The swine flu vaccine has been taken by many important persons, he wrote. Example, President Ford, Henry Kissinger, Elton John, Muhammad Ali, Mary Tyler Moore, Rudolf Nureyev, Walter Cronkite, Ralph Nader, Edward Kennedy, etc., etc. True? Uh, I'm not familiar with that particular piece of paper, uh, but I do know that at least of that group, President Ford did take the vaccination. Did you talk to these people beforehand to find out if they planned to take the shot? I did not know. Did anybody? I do not know. Did you get permission to use their names in your campaign? I do not know. Mary, did you take a swine flu shot? No, I did not. Did you give them permission to use your name saying that you had or were going to? Absolutely not. Never did. Did you ask your own doctor about taking the swine flu shot? Yes, and at the time he thought it might be a good idea. Um, but I resisted it because I was leery of having the symptoms that sometimes go with that kind of inoculation. So you didn't? No, I didn't. 
Have you spoken to your doctor since? Yes. And? He's delighted that I didn't take that shot. You're in charge. Somebody's in charge. There are... This is your advertising strategy that I have a copy of here. Who's it signed by? This one is unsigned. But you, you'll acknowledge that it was your baby, so to speak. It uh, could have been from the uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. It could be from CDC. I don't know. I'll be happy to take uh, responsibility for it. It's been three years now since you fell ill with GBS, right? Right. Has the federal government, in your estimation, played fair with you about your claim? No, I don't think so. Uh, it seems to be dragging on and on and on. And really, no end in sight that I can see at this point. With respect to the cases of Guillaume Barre, allegedly... Former Secretary of H.E.W. Joseph Califano, too, was disturbed that there was no end in sight. So a year and a half ago, he promised that Uncle Sam would cut the bureaucratic red tape for victims suffering from GBS and would pay up quickly. We shouldn't hold them to an impossible or too difficult standard of proving that they were hurt. Even if we pay a few people a few thousand dollars that might not have deserved it, I think justice requires that we promptly pay those people who do deserve it. Well, who's making the decision to be so hard-nosed about settling? Well, I assume the uh, Justice Department is. Griffin uh, Bell, before he left? Well, the Justice Department agreed to the statement I made. It was cleared word for word uh, with the lawyers in the Justice Department by my HEW lawyers. And that statement said, in effect, that that statement said that we should pay uh, Guillaume Beret claims without regard to whether the federal government was negligent if they, re if they resulted from the swine flu shot. I think the government knows it's wrong. If it drags out long enough, that people will just give up. <laughs> Let it go. I, I am a little more adamant in my thoughts than my wife is because uh, I asked, told Judy to take the shot. She wasn't going to take it, and uh, she never had had shots. And uh, I'm mad with my government because they knew the facts, but they didn't release those facts because they, if they had released them, the people wouldn't have taken it. And they can come out tomorrow and tell me there's going to be an epidemic, and they can drop off like flies to me. I will not take another shot that my government tells me to take. Meantime, Judy Roberts and some 4,000 others like her are still waiting for their day in court. I don't need another flu shot. I had a flu shot last year. A swine flu epidemic may be coming. Swine flu shot? Well, I don't know. I've been thinking about it. It could make you very sick. Swine flu? Man, I'm too fast for that to catch me. You'll want to. I'm the healthiest 55-year-old you've ever seen. Hey, I play golf every weekend. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot. Joe brought it home from the office. He gave it to Betty and one of his kids. And to Betty's mother. But Betty's mother went back to California the next day. On her way to the airport, she gave it to a cab driver, a ticket agent, and one of the charming stewardesses. At school, Joe's kid gave it to some other kids. And Mrs. Merrill got it and gave it to her husband. In California, Betty's mother gave it to her best friend, Dottie. But Dottie had a heart condition and she died. But before she died, Dottie gave it to her girlfriend, the mailman, 
the paper boy and the vet when she went to pick up her chihuahua. If a swine flu epidemic comes, this is how it could spread. You'll want to be protected, especially if you're elderly or chronically ill. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot. 